I'm going to ask you this bluntly. Yeah. Could Michael Bay make a good movie out of a Patty Chayefsky script? Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. Cecil and Peter are both out this week. Peter has got his technical issues fixed, but it's his birthday this week, so he's just skipping this week. But Peter is back next week, and so is Cecil. Cecil is just taking some personal time because we're recording this over the 4th of July weekend. So sitting in for them is the man I like to have the deeper philosophical discussions where we don't pander to our audience, Frederick Fritz. <laughs> there you go. But before that, what you guys need to do is, it's 4th of July weekend. Get yourself a weapon of ass destruction. Go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Celebrate America with a weapon of ass destruction. So on that note... Ass destruction. <laughs> See its sequel, Farts of Darkness. <laughs> so what, what we're going to talk about tonight is the differences in the art versus the commerce when it comes to film, where pandering stops and where pandering begins, and also when a, when you see a movie, you just generally feel like you got screwed, that, 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 that this movie owes you, that this movie played you. And you brought this up initially to me. What made you think this, Fred? Well, I know we're going to cover a breadth of of areas on this, but the the thing that was the inspiration, believe it or not, was the last Resident Evil movie. I know not to high art by any stretch of the imagination. And the only one I have not seen. Yeah. <laughs> You're lucky. After the, the one prior to this, I was just like, I don't care. I just straight up don't care. Well, that's what happened. In fact, that's where this comes from. I have a weird relationship with this series that it seems like every time I was out of town, a new Resident Evil movie came out. And so I was like, oh, why not? Because, you know, when you're out of town, you're not really up for the deeper stuff. You, well, at least I'm not. I want to have something fun and just late to kill time. See, when I'm out and, of town, I want to find, I want to find the art house that's playing the Antonioni films, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I tend to like to decompress because I'm usually out of town on business or something, or when I was, that is. And, uh, so I, you know, this, this series has a little bit of a, a home quality for me. Uh, call it what you will. The first film's okay. I actually have a love of the second. I really love the second. I know it's, not liked by a lot of the fans, but I think it's so much fun. It's ridiculous. She jumps over 30-foot fences. There's a giant monster with a Gatlin gun. There's zombie prostitutes. Zombie prostitutes. There's that whole chase, like, where she's running down the side of a building with a tether. I mean, come on. It's a good time. You, you just want to have a good time. That's a movie. It's a good time. And I started seeing the films out of town, and 3 was okay again. You're back to okay. Then, yeah, the last three. But let me tell you, this last film specifically, I walked out of it furious. I was angry. I just wanted a finale, right? That's what it says, right? The final chapter. Paul Anderson, Mili Jovovich, they've all been on advertising saying, this is it. We did this for the fans just to wrap it up because they're going to reboot the whole thing. Probably going to be closer to the games would be my bet. Well, yeah, this is not the final chapter. Spoiler alert, it doesn't end. 
it's still going at the end of the film. Did you feel the same ripped off at Friday the 13th Part 5 and all that then, too? No, this is different. This is definitely different because this film's not entertaining. It sucks. It changes the entirety. You know, this series has been loose with continuity, to say the least, but the first two films were sticking with a continuity. The third film, well, they destroyed the world. By the fourth, they retconned the whole destruction of the world. Oh, so it's Millennium Season 3. This film literally changes everything. The stuff about the Red Queen, no, 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 throw that away. The stuff about the little girl and her father who was the creator of the T-Virus, yeah, throw that all away. Why this is all happening, throw it all away. Who Alice is, throw it all away. It's the biggest insult to anyone's intelligence. And look, you know me. I can watch a movie and have a good time. I actually said I enjoyed The Last Fast and the Furious, you know, despite the constant drooling from my brain not working. Which is, again, (laughs) I'm sorry to repeat myself, the only one I haven't seen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to go too much longer on Resident Evil because it it was, I'm angry. I was, I felt like I'd been ripped off. All I wanted was some of the things I've enjoyed, a conclusion. That's it. That's all I wanted. This was the final chapter, and all I wanted was a conclusion. Just a little bit of fun, a little bit of action, and just an ending to wrap it all up in a neat little bow. I got none of that. I wasn't expecting anything. This, I mean, seriously, I could not have set the bar any lower if I was standing on it. It didn't meet any expectations, and I felt like Paul Anderson gave me the middle finger. And I don't like that. See, I've had that with movies before, too, where you just kind of like... What the hell was that? I've walked out of certain films going, why did I stay for that entire movie? For instance, like the 1998 Godzilla. That movie was so bad. I felt ripped off, and I saw that at a free preview screening. So I didn't even pay for that, and I got the little press kit and everything. I nearly walked out of that movie, Fred. I was so angry at how terrible this film was that I didn't even pay for it, and I felt ripped off. Yeah, it's it's a very negative feeling, because we're not talking about disappointment here. I think we need to clarify. Disappointment is when you see something and it doesn't live up to those expectations, which is part of this, truthfully. There's lots of things that have disappointed me. Let me give you an alternate example. I love the Tremors films, all right? But after part one, it's a land of diminishing returns with each sequel. Everybody that watches these movies knows that. They get uh, a little bit further away each film. But the thing is, is that they still stay true to the universe. You know what I mean? They are Tremors movies they have all the core ingredients and you feel like they are genuinely continuing the story there's little mistakes little continuity errors little ones which is to be expected in sequels what i'm talking about is like when you watch a tremors movie you generally get what you paid for and you know what you're getting what i'm talking about is when you feel deceived they gave you the middle finger just took the money out of your pocket and are laughing at you that bothers me quite a bit well, when it comes to a film series, let's, for this example, let's go with Universal Soldier. I brought this up on the show before. Is it angering when you have the first set of sequels, Universal Soldier 2 and 3, which were Showtime original movies that are direct sequels to the first film, and then the, then they go to direct to video, but then the direct to video producers say, we don't want 2 and 3 to be continuity, so we're now making, we're now making Universal Soldier 2, which is a direct sequel to part 1, but not two parts 2 
two and three. And then you have the next one, Universal Soldier The Return, that says none of those are continuity. We're just a direct sequel. Do you get the feeling that like like a franchise like that is just playing with you and that you should stop letting them? I, I think this comes down to the old chestnut of how much responsibility is on the audience. You know, we keep going to see these films. We keep paying to see them. We keep fueling it. You know, how many of those witchcraft movies were there? there I don't even are, remember. I think at last count there are 13 or 14, because believe it or not, there was a new one just a year or two ago. They're still making those. Yeah, and we all know they don't make them unless they make money. There are exceptions to the rule. Uh, you know, sometimes the continuity is messed up by other people and a filmmaker comes in and they want to fix it. I understand that. Uh, sometimes, you know, what's happened can't be fixed. It's it's irreversible. There's going to be different rules for different film series, and you have to have some allowance. But there's just that point at which you, you walk away and you go, I didn't get anything I said. It would be like watching it. You go to see an action movie, and all they do is talk for an hour and a half, right? Th that would be complete, like, denial of expectation. Well, okay, along those lines, though, have you ever seen the movie 3,000 Miles to Graceland? Oh, yeah, yeah, Kevin Costner and uh, my boy Kurt Russell. The problem is that trailer is for a different movie, isn't it? I'd say three-quarters of the trailer are all from the first 20 minutes of the film. That, when I went to go see that movie, I saw that in the theater, I was actively angry. Because I'm like, wait a minute, Christian Slater and all these other guys, they're all dead 20 minutes into the movie, but they all dominated the trailer. You son of a bitch, you stacked this trailer at me. Or when they do the whole, oh, this person's the star, and it was a cameo. And, I, and I'm not talking about, like, Scream, where they used Drew Barrymore and they pulled a Hitchcock. I'm talking about, like, a genuine, just, you know when you've been deceived. It's got Bruce I, Willis in it, and he's in it five minutes. Yeah, you know? well, I, I just, just today I was watching on TV Once Upon a Time in Mexico, a movie that I shouldn't like, but I think Johnny Depp makes the movie worthwhile. I'm not really a fan of Salma Hayek, but to say she stars in this movie and putting her on the box cover is really stretching it. When her character's dead the entire movie, and she only appears for about five minutes total in flashbacks, you can to go, no, this was not a Selma Hayek movie. Yeah, I, I I don't remember the exact name, but uh, RLM just did a Best of the Worst with uh, one of those David Dakota <laughs> films he makes, you know, the boy toy films. The the, and... the, the, the ones where they get Eric, he gets Eric Roberts to, to show <laughs> yes. up for a literal, like, just walking through and then starring Eric Roberts. Yeah, in fact, it was the, it was the classic talking cat thing where it's just the voiceover again. But he even outdid himself in this. I know it was called Bigfoot versus D.B. Cooper. That was it. And he actually says on the top Not of the box. Not a bad concept, just title. No, though. no, it's a great concept. In fact, on the show, they all said that's the movie they wanted to see. But it actually says at the top of the box that Linnea Quigley has top billing, along with Eric Roberts. Eric Roberts is just a VO, but at least he's throughout. <laughs> Lydia Quigley has one line like, can I see your ticket, sir? She's not on camera. It's that one line, and even the hand that reaches out to grab the ticket's a man's hand. It's just like, oh my gosh, that is deceit. And then you look at the cover, and the cover's beautiful. You know what I mean? It's like literally D.B. Cooper fighting Bigfoot. I, I would what? actually say one I want to see that. I, I'd say this one that's even more egregious than this would be Birdemic, starring Tippi Hedren. Tippi Hedren had nothing to do with the movie. The characters in the movie watch Tippi Hedren in Hitchcock's The Birds, and Tippi Hedren sued over this. That's that's just so blatant. You go, in a weird way, I admire your balls, but in another way, f*** 
fuck off. Well, and, and I'll, I, I only, I got a couple listed, but I'll tell you what, we can move on from this. I only want to mention one other one. The only other time I really was angry. This one is the only film I've been disappointed in Charlie Band films, you know, Full Moon, whatever. I've been disappointed. I've only been ever angry at one, just one. I was furious. And that was Doll Man versus Demonic Toys. Could not wait to see this. Like other fans, the expectations were high. You know, when Tim Thomerson is usually billed, they're usually a quality to them. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a level of quality. This film is, first of all, I think it's only like 69 minutes long, 69 and 70 minutes long. It's almost all clipped pieces from three other movies, Doll Man, Demonic Toys, and Bad Channels, that are easily half of the film. And the stuff that's new is dreadful. It is the cheapest of the cheap. I felt robbed. I genuinely felt robbed. And that's a whole other scenario right there. Okay, well then, you said you had some other things listed, because one of the topics I brought up to you off mic was, I wanted to talk about art versus commerce. Now, I've, I've, we talked about this topic many times before on the show, but what happens when, n- not in a David Dakota sense, where all they're making is shovelware product nowadays, in a more, when you have a director who's trying to make an art film, but has to factor in the commerce angle, or conversely, a director like Michael Bay, who we know is very... Okay, no matter what people say about Michael Bay, he is a fantastic director. You look at the shot compositions, a lot of people don't even know what this word means, but he the way he uses parallax, the depths of lenses, the way the camera mm-hmm. moves, the man is a fantastic director. And he's proved this a few times with movies like The Island and Pain and Gain, and even with some of his old music videos. But he just loves making these horrendously terrible Transformers movies, and those are purely and utterly for the commerce. So what about when a director can make art, but they choose not to? What do we as the filmgoers suffer from that? Because Michael Bay, I I think if you got him a really good tight script, I think he could make uh, maybe not an art film, but a film that would make critics go, what the hell? Like, all of a sudden, if you saw a Harlan Ellison story and then readapted by some fantastic, brilliant writer out there, you'd go, wait a minute, Michael Bay? Because that's one of the things I keep hearing about, like, The Island. People go, it's an atypical Michael Bay movie. I mean, people talk, and there's actually a story and stuff. People are shocked when someone like Michael Bay makes a good movie. I don't know if I can qualify... Could he? I mean, he's a good tactician. There's no doubt about it. He knows his, he knows his lenses. He knows his shots. So he is a good director. I, I wouldn't dispute that. I just wonder if whatever is wrong isn't at the core at this point. Like, maybe if you go back 15 years, you might be able to salvage that Michael okay, Bay. Then, all right. I'm going like, to ask you now, this bluntly. I don't know. I'm going to ask you this bluntly. Yeah. Could Michael Bay... Make a good movie out of a Patty Chayefsky script. I know what you're going for, but I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna counter and go, no, not now. Maybe at one time. Maybe it, I think that there's too much of Hollywood in him now. I think the dark side has got him. He's, uh, given himself over to the Emperor, and I don't think Luke can save him. Okay, well then, conversely, what about when, when a hack director thinks 
they're an artist, but they know they're making commercial product. I have to go to the low-hanging fruit that is Batman versus Superman. You look at all those shots of the sun behind Clark as he's coming down in the Christ pose, or the people in the flood, and just all the camera movements and the way that Zack Snyder lines up shots. He thinks he's making an art film. He truly mm-hmm. believes he's making a piece of art. How are you so blind to not go, dude, you're making crap! Yeah, now see here, to to really help with people to understand, I think, what we're talking about is, like, imagine writing a script. Everybody I've ever met that wants to make a movie or have anything to do with movies, they always have a great concept, right? Have you met those people, Josh? Like, oh, I got this great idea for a heist movie. You know what I'm talking about? And they all have a great idea. You remember when e, uh, IMDb used to have the comment section and everybody had a great idea for a sequel to this movie, to that movie, and everything? Concepts are easy, all right? Anybody could think of, hey, this would be a great – and I'm not saying they could execute it. Just everybody has great ideas because an idea is just a singular thing that's in a bubble, okay? Aliens come down and commit a heist on planet earth but now here's the thing you have to take this concept and you have to turn it into a working script we've talked about this a million times the characters have to be relatable the dialogue has to push the narrative forward and the story has to progress this is a process it's a very long process it's a very boring process and it takes a tactician filmmaking is that it's both that in the visual as well as the writ. Zack Snyder is an MTV director. He's great at the compact idea. He's great at the visual. Oh my gosh, look at this chick jumping 30 feet in the air he's and fighting a samurai robot. Pieces. He's great at concepts. What he's not good at is connecting them. Hitchcock was classic for never worrying about how scenes would connect. He he had a lot of comments about that. He just took each scene that was in the script and he built around them. And and then he just did what he did in editing. The man just had a gift. That's it. He just had a gift. Zack Snyder, on the other hand, it's just a hodgepodge of images. It's just a hodgepodge of concepts. There's no narrative flow. There's next to no structure. And the characters are generally uninteresting. Michael Bay that you brought up, he can push the narrative. Go back and watch The Rock. It's a lot of fun. It's silly, but the story's always moving. The characters are interconnected. You care about them. It's also That's kinetic. The difference between the, yeah. When you come to The Rock, it's a kinetic story. There are ebbs and flows, obviously, but really, once that story kicks into gear, it doesn't stop, yet it doesn't feel like it's becoming overbearing. Yeah, and let's contrast this with the type of artists that I think you're referencing. Let's take the Coen brothers or David Lynch, right? Here's two types of artists. They they teeter on art house, sometimes kind of falling one side or the other. I'd say the Coens tilt the scale a little bit more commercial. David Lynch tilts the scale a little bit more art house. But these are those... T- Two group, well, I say groups because of brothers, but you know what I mean. The two filmmakers, they have a focus that is a bit more artistic. They use symbolism. They use sound. They have quirky characters. These characters and stories, they still somehow come up commercial. Not always, of course. There's exceptions. They teeter that line, whereas back to could Michael Bay direct, that's where I kind of stumble. Could he? I guess I don't know. I don't think so now. These guys, could they do it? Yes. You know, they'd have their own twist. They'd have their own vision. And ultimately, that's what a good director does. They take the material and they make it better. Or they do something different with it. They do something fresh with it. We don't have that as much today unless it's 
those names. I don't know if you're watching Twin Peaks right now, but it's so freaking weird. I don't know if David Lynch is trolling the producers because he only wanted to do nine episodes and they demanded more. And so there's 18 and like these first nine are going to be just total mind screws and the rest of it's going to be Twin Peaks. Or if he's secretly a genius, I don't know yet. I haven't figured it out. But it's interesting. They're paying him to do it. Well, okay, then what about an artist that's related to the Coens? Actually, he's the one who got the Coens started. What about someone like Sam Raimi? When mm-hmm. you go back, you look at Evil Dead Two specifically, Evil Dead Two, but Evil Dead Two, and you look at you, you look at something like Crime Wave movies like that, you can see the artist in him. And then you look at like Drag Me to Hell and Spider Man and like l- the the Wonderful Land of Oz or whatever, and you go, there's no artist left. He's just making commercial now, isn't he? He's just a commercial director now. I literally can't see how 1987's Evil Dead 2 Sam Raimi made 2001's Garbage Spider-Man. Those, to me, are two totally different directors. This one's tricky, and you know how sometimes you know the answer and you don't want to say it because you like someone? You know what I'm talking about? You you just don't want to do it. This is that case. I think Sam Raimi is someone who had a bag of tricks. It was a great bag of tricks. It was a fun bag of tricks, but it was a limited bag of tricks. You see a lot of the same kind of gags in all of his movies. You know, the, when somebody's thinking things are floating across the screen, the hyperkinetic shots, the Dutch angles. POVs. POVs. I mean, and then at a certain point, you just kind of go to see one of his movies and go, you got something else? I think Sam may have hit his quota is what I'm trying to say. I I don't know if there's anything else there, he'd have to prove us wrong. You know what I mean? It, it's up to him to do that that film, uh, have a great William Goldman script, and blow us away. I just don't know if it's there. That's all I can say about Sam on that one. I, I think there's a fun filmmaker there. I, I don't know if he could ever cross over into Cohen territory. What, what was the one he did with Billy Bob Thornton? A Simple Plan. That film... Is so Cohen in its essence, and to me, it's oh, a disaster. It doesn't feel, it, it doesn't feel a, Sam Raimi at all. No, but it's a disastrous Cohen movie, in my opinion. I know people like that one, by the way. Okay, let's just talk about Cohen and Raimi for a minute. Then hmm. look at Raising Arizona. Mm-hmm. The Cohens who came up through Sam Raimi, working on Crime Wave and Evil Dead Two and all that. Raising Arizona feels like a Sam Raimi film. It really yeah. does. Yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head. Is that uh, Barry Sonnenfeld as the cinematographer? Don't remember who the if that was Sonnenfeld or not. But because I, I, I hadn't seen Raising yes. Arizona in twenty years, and I watched it again a couple of years ago, and went, I actually had to go check to make sure because I, I remembered it being a Coen Brothers film. I'm like, did Sam Raimi direct this? Because it what? really <laughs> feels. I mean, the camera angles, the movement, the edit. It and Sam Raimi didn't produce it or anything, but it feels like a Sam Raimi film. So they were taking. It's funny when you look at like their early stuff. They were very much aping what they learned from Sam Raimi. They hadn't quite come into their own yet, you know? True. And by the way, I did look it up to confirm. Yes, Barry Sonnenfeld was the cinematographer. And Barry is the one that tends to like that kinetic camera work. There's that shot in Blood Simple, the Cohen's first movie, where the camera's going along the bar. There's the man passed out in the bar, and then the camera goes whoop over him. I think that's more of a Barry Sonnenfeld thing because you don't see that in the later Coens when he didn't work with them, but you do see it like in the Adams family and the stuff he actually directed, Barry Sonnenfeld that he directed. Right. I, see, so the, the, the reason I was it. thinking, the reason I was thinking it though is because 
of the Coens coming right off of working on Evil Dead 2 and oh, I, I bet, Crime yes. Waves. So, yeah. you know, I, I think it was their call on those. I, I don't know if because how much control they had over that, because I know Scott Spiegel likes that kind of stuff, too. So they may have been influenced by Scott Spiegel, for Scott, all we know. No, no, there's a big difference. Scott Spiegel overdoes that. All you need to do is to watch Texas Blood Money from Dust Till Dawn 2, <laughs> and you're going to go, okay, does every object in this movie get a POV shot? Sam Raimi uses POV shots when they're necessary. Scott Spiegel uses them every time he can. There's a big no, difference there. All I'm saying is we might have a pool here is all I'm saying. I don't know who the first person was that said this or that. It was probably Raimi because if you look at Into the Woods, that I think wasn't that what it was called, the test film for Evil Dead? It has that hyperkinetic camera. So I think it was Raimi. I think it did influence them, which may have influenced Sonnefeld. I don't know what the domino effect is here, but yeah, they're all connected. Well, actually, with with you bringing up Sonnenfeld, I'm thinking to the opening credits of Men in Black with the, the mosquito fly thing going through with a big one kinetic shot that that's oh, yeah. a sam raimi shot well again and sonnenfeld was connected to all these people so i don't know i can't say who said what when to inspire it uh, we know like for instance when robin hood prince and tights uh, uh i'm sorry uh robin hood prince of thieves <laughs> prince of tights boy did i slaughter that with mel brooks stop for a second because i actually would love to have seen kevin costner in in that in the mel brooks movie that would have been interesting. That's a combination we need. But there was that shot in the trailer where uh, Robin Hood pulls out the bow and shoots the arrow, and we're on the POV of the arrow. And it wasn't in the film, and when people found out, they 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 were upset, and so they actually put it in the movie. <laughs> and then like POVs were everywhere. I think that again, it's the tool in the toolbox. You said yourself, Scott Spiegel overuses it. Barry Sonnenfeld uses it a lot. But he uses it, I think, in the right ways for the right comedic effects. You put that tool from the toolbox in the, you know, the hands of the wrong person and it, it becomes a nightmare. These are more artistic things. It's interesting to note. Would Hollywood have just done something this on their own? No, I don't think so. I, I think guys like Raimi and Cohen's did influence it. I think they did push it into the mainstream. And isn't that the way it's always kind of been? The little films do something and hey, look at that. And they bring it in or the way they that, that's always the way steal it. Hollywood is the land of unoriginality. But along those notes, prior to the show, you and I were talking about Blade Runner. Blade Runner uh, is is a movie. Let's we're not going to get into the different cuts. Just Blade Runner in general as a movie. Fair I enough. think Ridley Scott is he shoots this movie like an art film. Long ponderous shots of characters thinking about life and the deep questions that the film brings up. Yet somehow he was able to make this stylistic art film as a commercial film, let's leave out all the behind-the-scenes nonsense and Ridley Scott was fired and all this. I think Blade Runner is one of those weird movies that is a mainstream art film. Yes, I'll go with that. It's it's hard to say because, again, you know, what is a particular movie until it's made? I mean, there's a lot being said about Ridley didn't have a clear vision, for instance, and he changed his mind a lot. But I don't care how much you throw that in. You look at this film, and like you said, there's these pondering shots. There's this beautiful, rich cinematography. It's in every shot. I mean, it's not like a couple of shots. It's It permeates every image in this film you could almost take each image and hang it on your wall as a portrait so i don't disagree it's beautiful it's more artistic i don't like the term ahead of its time but i don't think audiences were ready to accept it because of you know harrison ford what he had been playing at that time and it, it's a definitely a darker 
story that I think audiences at the time were up for agree with it as the whole. It's it's definitely a more artistic movie. There's no doubt about that. There, I don't think you can deny that. I, I would say let's stick in that same era. Look at just the difference between Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back. Leaving out, again, I'm so sick of having to put in qualifiers, leaving out special editions and all that nonsense. Just the, the directing styles between Irving Kirshner and George Lucas. George Lucas tends to shoot, I, I don't want to say documentary, but he shoots very matter-of-fact. Back then, he was not a bad director, but it was a very matter-of-fact type of directing, which could, which would almost lend itself to a documentary, which is something he picked up from Coppola. But at the same time, then you go to 1980, and you look at Kirshner. Kirshner shoots very artistically longer shots that have that tell the story more through the body language and what's going on than the dialogue because at one point i just saw this recently in one of chuck sonnenberg's videos during the making of empire george lucas was getting so frustrated with kirshner lucas tried to edit the film and he couldn't because their styles are so drastically different George Lucas's edit of Empire Strikes Back, everyone agreed, was a complete disaster. And then Kirshner came in, edited it like he intended it to, the way he shot it to, and it became the classic that it is. Isn't it weird to look at, like, Empire and Star Wars as part of the same franchise that the sequel to arguably the largest film ever made at that point, they hired an artistic director rather than a commercial director? That's a very 80, 1980 concept that you would not do today, huh? Well, with with this one, there's several things that we, we don't have the time to go into them. But Irving Kirshner, you said, I think you were more on track with the first part. If you go back and watch his other movies, Flim Flam Man and things like that, I, I don't think he's quite as artsy as you're saying. I, I think he's a workman, but a talented one who understands character, motivation, and the emotional impact on an audience. In that regards, if you look at Star Wars, that's a swashbuckler movie. If you look at Empire, that's a people movie. That's a movie about people, about characters, the way Han talks to Leia, the way Luke fails. You know, he's not succeeding. He's failing everywhere, and he fails at the end. You look at that shot where he confronts Vader and they're backlit. These shots, are they pull an emotion out of us. If you want to talk maybe more artistic, look at Star Trek The Motion Picture. Star Trek The Motion Picture was on my list. I was going to say, that was a... Honestly, that was a bizarre choice to go mm -hmm. with Robert Wise. Robert Wise is a yeah. fantastic director, but you just don't see him doing something as, I wouldn't say Star Trek is as swashbuckling as Star Wars, but as adventure-based as Star Trek was. He just seemed like the wrong director for that. I think that it's a, it's a, it's a two-punch on that one. The script... And then Robert, I, and I always hate to say this because it, it sounds so mean and I don't mean it in that way. We were in a new era and things were changing and I think Robert was just too old for the project. I think a younger director willing to take chances would have really done something to, you know, you could have done the same script, but and Nicholas Meyer. Yes, exactly. Nick, oh, I love Earlis Nick. Tom, time after time is a movie I adore beyond all measure. And if he had done it with the same script, you know that would have been, well, he would have changed the script. But I'm saying with the same concept, he would have done something fresh with it. I think Robert, he's he's an amazing artist. An amazing artist. I just feel that 
he was past his prime and he was trying to direct something was a little out of his league. But guess what? You know what? You can say that about Kirshner and I'm proven wrong. So I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> what about then someone like Orson Welles? Mm-hmm. who in his whole career, I mean, he came out of the gate with everything stacked against him. After Citizen Kane, there was nowhere to go but down for him. He peaked right away. So there was nothing he could have done. I mean, obviously, we've never seen his cut of The Magnificent Ambertons or Touch of Evil or anything like that. But just knowing Orson Welles, you have to think he is the ultimate director who has constantly fought for art in a commerce market. And unfortunately, he lost almost every single time. Yeah, it's sad because the one thing Hollywood... Hollywood doesn't like to share its toys, is I think the best analogy I can make. To them, it's one way, always. If if some period, that style that Orson Welles did suddenly catches on with the audience, that's all you see. They can't have both. They can't have those more commercial movies that are a little more accessible to a general audience, as well as Touch of Evil. They don't ever seem to coexist. You can point to this throughout history. It's only when you get these weird meldings. You brought, in fact, I got a couple notes here. They're interesting. You brought up Blade Runner. Blade Runner had Rutger Hauer, who was this actor in Europe who was in all these very artsy movies, especially with Paul Verhoeven. Again, a more artistic director who was brought over here. What does he make for his first movie? He made freaking Robocop. That weird melding of these two things, Rutger Hauer and Blade Runner. And you got Ridley looking at things different and he's got Rutger and everybody that pretty much watches Blade Runner, the first thing they lock onto is not Harrison Ford. It's Roy Batty. Way that Rutger speaks, the way he delivers a line, his voice is almost, you, it's not like you could say, oh, that guy's obviously German by the way he talks. He has this unusual voice and that performance is this weird melding. And it's like, had you ever seen a movie by David Schmuller called Crawl Space done by Mr. Charlie Band during the Empire? The, the Klaus, Klaus Kinski one? Yeah. Now, look at that movie. Here's a great example where exploitation and art just collide. That film is – it's it's tiptoeing on an art film, and it's amazing. And Kinski, who, if you know anything about him, is a, he's, he was detestable, and we won't go into all that. And even how what he did to David Schmuller on that film was creepy as all heck. But – and yet you watch this movie – you can't take your eyes off Kinski in this film. He is the one of the most sympathetic evil people I've ever seen on screen. I don't know how he did it, but that film teeters that line. I think that's sort of what you're looking for too here in the discussion is that weird like if you go one way, it doesn't do well. Blade Runner was a failure, a financial failure. You look at other films and you see something like like a, like a RoboCop, huge hit where these two sensibilities somehow just worked. I think Crawl Space is a little bit in that category too. It for exploitation. For those of you who haven't seen it, if you see it, don't go expect Oh, it's a straight it, up it's, exploitation. It's film. a straight up exploitation film, but it's a smarter exploitation film. I, I would along those same lines, I would say Dante's The Howling. You, you look at the yes. lighting, the camera angles, the way he uses shadow and the backlighting. Dante was making an art film. I think you're dead on. I think The Howling is a much more artistic film. And there was that film years later. We've never seen the full cut, I don't believe. But Wolfen, that is almost too artsy for the type of movie they were trying to do. And I, I think in the case of Wolfen, it was supposed to be even artsier because yeah. there's two and a half freaking hours cut out of that movie. And <laughs> it's still almost a two-hour movie as released. That's a director who's gone crazy. 
If yeah. you thought in 1981 a studio was going to release a five-hour, not really, but sold as a werewolf film. Wolfen's another one. I was actively angry the first time I saw that movie. Not because it's a bad movie, because it's a great movie. I was expecting a werewolf movie, because mm-hmm. I was sold a werewolf movie. That trailer makes it look like a werewolf movie, completely. Th- this was sold as a werewolf movie. It's not. You have another, I don't know if I'd call this in the commercial area, because it's still kind of an art film, but have you seen trailers for this new movie that just came out, The Bad Batch? Yes, yes. I At first you had mentioned it to me before, and I, I didn't remember it until you started talking about it, and then I was like, oh, it's the one where the girl's scooting on her back with one leg. And yeah, that is a odd trailer. Well, I've seen the movie. It, right now it's only out in 30 theaters, but I've seen the movie. It, it's got some, it's got problems to it, but they're mostly script problems. The, the acting, who in the hell would have thought casting Jim Carrey as a bum in a post-apocalyptic wasteland who has no dialogue is the breakout character? Jim Carrey steals this movie. The whole movie is shot like it's an art film. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. And that's why I don't think it's going to be a commercial success. Mm-hmm. The film is shot as sort of this wasteland, Mad Max-style revenge thriller. Well, that's the way it's being told. It's shot with long, ponderous shots, deep focus. There's almost, other than Keanu Reeves' character, who is like a Jim Jones ruler of, of part of the wasteland, there's almost no dialogue in the whole film. Commercial films don't go dialogue-free. If they really think people are going to enjoy this movie, I liked it. I don't think the same people that are going to see the new Bayformers movie are going to embrace a film like Bad Batch. Yeah, it's it's a hard call because you wonder sometimes, or at least I do, how does Terrence Malick keep getting money for movies? And I mean that in the sense of... Except he's a terrible director. Well, and but let's be fair. There are people that love him and they think he's very artistic. And you kind of wonder, well, why, how does this guy do it? You know, what is he doing that keeps getting him money? It's not like his films are these gigantic financial successes. As for The Bad Batch, who knows? Maybe we'll get another, but in a different way, a Mad Max Fury Road, where you watch the movie and you go, where did this come from? Like, that's, how, a, that's another great how did example. this happen? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great example because really when I saw Fury Road in the theater, I was thinking to myself, this is an art exploitation film through mm-hmm. and through. Completely. You see those, it, that's that weird hodgepodge. I've actually heard people debate the, the artistic merits of RoboCop. It, it's funny that there are these movies that I've always said that if if a movie can pull out an emotion, if it can evoke a feeling from you, it's something more than just this commercial thing. Obviously, there are commercial movies that are made that just happen to have a lot of great people. You know what I mean? They have a lot of great people attached. A good director, a good writer, good actors, and then something happens. Something magic. What it is, sometimes we can't quite put it on, but it's just a lot of good people all together at the right time. You know, if you look at the first Matrix, it's not what you'd call a deep movie. Not by any stretch of the imagination. It wants to pretend it is. But it's not. 
But it's yet, also not it, the it's also not the babbling tripe that the next two movies well, would be. That's where I was going. Look at that first movie. It's it is artistic the way the shots are done. Don Davis's score. He even there's this thing visually with mirrors in the movie, and his score does this thing where it, it mirrors the notes. This is a much more artistic approach to an action sci-fi adventure. Then look at parts two and three and cringe in horror. Oh ye who must sit through it and bear it. Then you go to Fury Road again. Again, and you you sit there and you go, how did this get made? Certain directors like Paul Thomas Anderson. Now, I haven't liked PTA's last couple of movies. You look at like Boogie Nights and Hard Eight, and you just say to yourself, these are mainstream art films. Well, Hard Eight, maybe not mainstream, but Boogie Nights was absolutely mainstream. But you look at the way he shot Boogie Nights. That's an art film. Yeah, I mean, again, not completely. I think it has just enough to put it in there, you know. But I would agree with that. It's much more artistic. Well, we keep saying artistic. Let's be a little more uh, specific. It's a little more thoughtful. The characters and their situations are all very... They, you could see the ideas clashing. You know, the scene with Roller Girl in the back of the limousine, I think, is a good example. This, in the hands of other directors, could have been very exploitive. I mean, and it is exploitive, but that's the point of the scene. The, you know, oh, we're going to try something new. We're going to pick up somebody and have them have sex with you. And, and you, re oh my gosh, it's too far. Why? Because these are people. Like a movie within a movie, it, these are human beings, and human beings have limitations. That's the story we see throughout the entirety of it. We see him get in his, his fall and getting involved with drug dealers, and it's like, wait a minute, these are people, you know? And they, they bleed, and they can be hurt emotionally. They're not props. They're not things. You, you also brought up emotion, though. Yeah. Look at look at the long way down one last thing sequence in that. First of all, who would have thought Jesse's girl and sister Christian could ever bring out <laughs> the dread? No, that that whole scene is full of dread, isn't it? Oh, completely. And these are poppy, upbeat songs, but the way Anderson directs this and the acting, you feel the dread of what is about to happen to these guys. And we see that from time to time in the strangest of places. John Woo was that great kind of contradiction director. He makes these, these, these kinetic action movies and yet you'll have a scene like in Face Off where the little boy has the headset on as all this violence is erupting around him and you just hear somewhere over the rainbow. It's kind of a beautiful scene. Sometimes a director can get forced into that. Did you ever watch the Terminator TV series, the Sarah Connor Chronicles? Yes, and I actually liked it. Oh, I did too. I thought it was a fantastic show. Talk about being pissed off. That finale and then getting canceled pissed me off. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to hunt someone down on that one. Remember the season one finale when the FBI is going in to finally... Oh, the motel. The motel yes, scene. Yes, Camardi. They couldn't afford to do this big shootout with a Terminator and the SWAT team. So out of desperation, they made one of the most artistic moments in that year of television. We only see from a, from the angle of a swimming pool set to Johnny Cash's When the Man Comes Around, we hear the gunshots and we just keep seeing SWAT team members flying out. And it's so artistic and so perfect. And you just say to yourself, it would have never been this artistic if they'd had a larger budget. And they could have done the shootout traditionally. Well, that's that's the story of so many films. Jaws always comes to mind right off the top, you know. When we did our Jaws retrospective, I said, Jaws is the greatest accidental classic ever made. But many movies are. Apocalypse Now is in that category. That movie shouldn't work. 
Fury Road shouldn't work. Jaws shouldn't work. You know, and perhaps this is where that concept of editing, you know, they always say a movie is made in editing. And maybe there's a bit more truth to that than we think. Star Wars was saved in editing. I think there's a lot of, th- you know, you brought up Sarah Connor Chronicles. I read an interview with the, the creators and they were ta- asking them about all the religious sim- sim- symbolism in the stories. They didn't intend that. It actually came about because the actor... The character is Ellison. Ha, 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 in joke. Ellison! Yeah, that's right. How could I forget? Well, the actor was a person of faith, and he was talking to them about this idea, and they wrote in to his character that he was a man of faith. And then they started seeing these illusions between the concept of God and his creation and, of course, man and its creation. That wasn't in the original scripts. That just kept growing and growing and growing. And then the man comes around. That's about the return of Christ, even, the song by Cash. So all these things kind of converge to make a perfect storm. It it really is a great show, too. You also have something like where even if a director has a certain style, when they try to get artistic, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, look at Oliver Stone on Natural Born Killers. That thing is shot, and I think... it's it, just like Fury Road. It's a miracle it worked. That whole movie is shot like a student film. By all rights, Natural Born Killers should not even cut together as a narrative. But it does. Is that due to the skill of Oliver Stone? Or is that due to just dumb luck like with Jaws? It just happened to all fall into place. Well, I'm going to... I have to preface this one. I think that movie's crap. I think it's a failure at what you're talking about. I, I think it's an amazing film. And so do a lot of people. There are, you know, we talked about sometimes you have to step away from yourself and you have to say people love it, so look at it from that perspective. Or what is it about it? In this case, I believe the answer is yes. It's because of Oliver Stone and who he is and his ability. The reason I say that is if you look at the scene with Rodney Dangerfield where he's the abusive father in the flashback, but it's done like a sitcom – That's not an accident. That is a calculated sequence. It is done a certain way. Rodney Dangerfield was talking about an interview. He was so uncomfortable. He actually hated that sequence, but he trusted Stone. So there you go. That was a creation of Oliver Stone. It's a scene that people still talk about, love it or hate it. They still talk about it. I don't like the movie. I remembered it. I believe he, again, here's that craftsman. I I called Michael Bay a tactician. That was not accidental. I think on a technical level, Michael Bay is amazing. I just don't know yet if I think he's a craftsman. Oliver Stone is a craftsman. Look at his past work. Look at any of the films that he's renowned for, even talk radio to Wall Street to, of course, Platoon. Then look at Natural Born Killers, and the answer is yes, it's because of him. That same script in anyone else's hands would have been too simplistic, too silly. It it, it would have probably been closer to true romance. You know what I mean? I think it would have been more over there. Both were written by Tarantino, so that's not a bad correlation. Right. Well, it shows that one was made more commercial and one was made with a more artistic sensibility. There's no doubt that Natural Born Killers took huge, huge risks. And it paid off. It paid off. It won. It, it, I've it, called Natural Born Killers the biggest budget art film ever released. To finish up tonight, we have to talk about, like, the Bayformers and that. When, when a movie, like all, like the last three, last, all five Transformers movies, or the last Fast and the Furious, which I haven't seen, but I, I know enough about, or movies like that are made to be dumb. And, and I say this with, you look at, 
the behind the scenes of the Transformers movies. They're not aiming high. They're aiming at a these are these are stupid fun movies. When that becomes the norm, can an art film let, let, let me let me rephrase that. Can an artful director make a good movie in an environment like that? Or are we just left to the accidents like Fury Road? I think you they can. I just don't know if we have the tactician. Sorry, wrong word, because I just defined that. I don't think we have as many craftsmen. It's a different environment. It's something we've discussed many a time that back in the 80s, and, and not to praise the 80s, we're talking about the people that came from it. You know, you could get Ray Wise, you could get Lawrence Kasdan and uh, uh, Kirshner, and these people who grew up in a different age of writing and directing, and they took chances. And then once Batman happened, we've said it a billion times, it changed. And they wanted a formula. They wanted a pattern. And you saw the rise of, in Hollywood, one group of directors. But then this independent scene came up. And it's weird, but because of these two divergents, we lost that middle ground, that craftsman, that person that is just, they, they know how to intricately film a scene, well, write a scene, film a scene, edit a scene. We kind of lost that art form a little bit, I think. You, you've got guys like Tarantino. I mean, he's good. There's no doubt about that. He, his stuff's a little similar. Okay, his characters all sound like they're written by Quentin Tarantino. Well, and I think with Tarantino's more recent films contrasted with his 90s work, they don't, his films don't have the energy that Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, and Jackie Brown had. Or, or, Or even Kill Bill. But like Hateful Eight and Inglorious Bastards, they don't have the energy that his 90s work had. Well, his films have become a weird pastiche remember whens. It's it's as if he's like a caricature artist, you know, uh, that's drawing these films of the past, but with his very broad strokes. And uh, not to go off in Tarantino, but I, I feel as if we're back to that thing I talked about with Mel Brooks and Young Frankenstein, where, you know, they couldn't even find cinematographers that knew how to shoot black and white like the old movies. It was an art that was forgotten. And I feel like we're kind of there. And the generation that's coming up now, they seem to be like they want to explore that again. And it's like we're starting over and we're getting these generation of filmmakers that are like, oh, what if we did this and what if we did this? And so who knows, in 10 years from now, we might have that new batch of craftsmen that have been toiling away at movies. You know, maybe it'll start again. It, there's more hope now, but I think we did lose something somewhere along the line. You, you always had this thing with the, with the different generations as they're coming up. And I think uh, oh, for to, sure. stick Tar- to stick with Tarantino for a moment, Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown very much feels like a ni- like a 1997 movie, but it also feels like a 70s style movie. It's but it also feels 90s. That's a very hard thing to do. Look at the Hateful Eight. It's a western. It feels 2016. E- even he's kind of lost that ability to mesh the different styles because. I agree with you. You have all these people that maybe were growing up on the 90s movies. Now, they're still, they're not making movies in the style of the 90s. Now they're making movies in the modern style. 
part of that I blame on digital, part of that I blame on CGI. I hate the fact that directors I love, like Robert Rodriguez, are relying so heavily on CGI now, but that's a totally different topic. One of the things I hate is a director who forgets his roots, and I think George Lucas is the perfect example of that. The George Lucas of the 1970s would have never worked for the George Lucas of the 2000s. Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, And you said something that, that generationally there's always been differences. What I was referring to more was it it was less about the difference in the films and the generation. I'm talking more about the training, just for clarity. A lot of the directors who became big in the 80s were people trained by the people who were filming in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, guys from Corman, who worked with Corman, brought that past experience forward. All these people had training from the old world, and that training seems to have been lost. It seems like it's not being passed on because Quentin didn't work with people like that. Kevin Smith didn't work like that. And you could keep going on and on with the names of directors who didn't get raised or trained with that kind of mentality. And I don't mean they have to make movies like that. I'm just saying there was that base. You know what I'm talking about? That base education. And I think just something's been lost somewhere along the lines that we have to find again. Frederick Fritz. Where can where can people find him? Because he's out there. Well, for Frederick Fritz, as I've said a billion times, is on Movie Apocalypse on Facebook. You'll notice I've posted up some photos, maybe, if you've been following me, uh, some location potential. So, yes, I am finally working on a project. It is actually happening. I've been talking to some actors. There may be a horror short in the future. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. And you can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.